This is Anyone Can Do a Welcome. I'd like to start off with an acknowledgement of country. Bayaju Budri, Darugu, Giyura, Giyura, Nurabarang. Bayaju Budri, Darugu, Warangad, Giyuragu, Barani, Yagu, Baribugu. Bayaju Budri, Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander, Giyuragu, Nura, Vimogu. I speak well of the Darug people, the people belonging to country. I speak well of the old ones, past, present, and the future people. I speak well of all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and their homelands. Welcome back for episode three of Anyone Can Do a Welcome. Naya Giara Anissa Buruburongo Darug Jin Naya Marangora Barang Darug Norawa. I'm Anissa Buruburongo woman for the Richmond area on Darug country. So last episode I talked about the creation of the Parramatta and Blacktown Native Institutes. We had a look at what was happening on Darug Nura and discussed the second invasion of Darug Nura. But we only touched on that a little bit because it's still happening. So this week I'm going to start with our Darug Dalung informants and the people that recorded them, what's happening with Lizard Rock and Durabang, and finally the latest non-Darug welcome to country on Darug Nura. So I'm going to start off with Pachagarang and Dawes. So Pachagarang was a Gamaray called Darugjin who was the first to record our Dalung with William Dawes. You'll notice I didn't put Dawes actually first for this and it's for a reason. So without Pachagarang, there would be no recorded Darug Dalung at a time when mob were being killed by smallpox or by the invaders or being thrown off their own country and so on. This was a pivotal time in our history and we need to honour Aunt with the respect she deserves. However, had Dawes's notebooks not been found, we would never have known about Pachagarang. There is nothing written about her in any other records. This could be for two reasons. One, because she mobbed, and two, because she was female. And you look at that hierarchical structure in, of the British that men were more important and more relevant than the women, whereas in our culture, men and women are equal. In his book, the author of 26 Views of the Starburst World, William Dawes at Sydney Cove, Ross Gibson states, there is no doubt Bajagarang was remarkable. Young as she was, she was Dawes' intellectual equal. Okay, just, just pause there. Intellectual equal. But these fellows will come to save us, remember? She was not adverse to carrying complex political messages to the British, even as she also negotiated the intricacies of her friendship with Dawes. Now, there are two points of thought here. One, they was just friends and that's all it was. And then you get this romanticised that they were lovers and they would meet up and blah, blah, blah. And it's very much the Disney version of Pocahontas, but here. So let's just put it into perspective. Pachagarang was 15. Dawes would have been at least in his late 20s, early 30s. If you look at the, the parallels with Pocahontas, she was 12 and John Smith was in his 30s. So can we not romanticise the history of our people? Can we not allow that to happen? I, for one, am very anti any sort of romanticising about it, period. 
So we're going to have a quick look at William Dawes, and I mean a quick look because there's enough written on this fella. We won't go there. According to the website WilliamDawes.org, Dawes was a Royal Marine who fought in the American Revolutionary War. So he was at Chesapeake Bay in Maryland. I used to live around there. Um, so I know that place. A good feed up there, soft shell crab, just saying. If you're a keen, just go and have some. Uh, he later became recognised as an astronomer and was asked to join the first fleet for his skills in that, in, in astronomy. He had an observatory, well, basically a hut, was built on Dutta, our word for tooth, but you may now know it as Dawes Point, which is under the south pylon of the Harbour Bridge. He started recording language with Batagrang, and because he didn't like Philip's request, which I mentioned earlier um, in an episode, to kill and behead 10 Darugmala, he wasn't allowed to stay in the colony past 1791. And as an aside, he actually became more vocal about the abolishment of slavery once he returned back to London. So we'll give him a little bit of a shout out there for, for trying to abolish slavery. <laughs> but that's about it. Okay, our second language informant was Jimmy Lowndes. Now, Jimmy Lowndes was born in Camden in the 1830s on the Murungong Darugnura, a.k.a. the Cow Pastures mob, who are still around and thriving, despite what certain other people think. He was a knowledge holder who had extensive experience with pastoral life, men and animals looking after farms and stuff like that. So he was born around 50 to 60 years after the British got here. And by then, obviously, cows, sheep, pigs, horses, etc., had taken over parts of Nora. So he was aware of how to how to look after them, how to deal with them, how to um, just everything to do with those animals, and even the um, planting of the British wheat and the British corn and the British like all of those sorts of things. So Jimmy was recorded by linguists um, R. H. Matthews and Mary Everett. As a Darug Mala who spoke Darug, he was able to identify where Darug was spoken. So Campbelltown, Camden and Liverpool. Note, these areas are currently being fraudulently claimed as Darawal. Uncle worked with these linguists to help them compile our vocab and our customs. He informed Matthews and Everett that Darug could talk to Gundungara. Don't come for me, Gundungara mob. If it's Gundungara, Gundungara, there's two ways apparently to pronounce it. Um, we shared language with these fellas, ceremony and space, and they'd come to ceremony around the Campbelltown area. Uncle's sharing of knowledge and language has allowed us to view Darug life at the time, if only in a small amount. Now, here's a little bit of information about R.H. Matthews and why his work with our community is both important but also controversial. So the importance is that we have records of our language being shared by Darug speakers. The controversial side is that the knowledge of some of our Dalung was never meant to be shared so publicly, specifically the language around men's and women's businesses and the creation stories. So the language of place, which I've touched on, um, trying to have sister knowledgeance and Turner come out to community and, and run some workshops so we can, we we as Darug people can and look at our history and our, of, of language in itself. Um, there's components that should never be shared with either gender and there's things that definitely around the creation stories. Um, there's a name for the creation 
makers. Um, one in particular is solely for men to use, which I will not use, and one for women in our community. But that male version was shared in the RH Matthews document, so hence why I'm not going to say it. So Matthews was born on Gabrigal Darugnua at Narellan. Um, in 1841, he died on Baramadagul Darugnua in 18, sorry, 1918. And he was a drover who got to meet mob up in Queensland. And then he came back to Parramatta after about 10 years. And he started doing survey work and took an interest in the anthropological nature of the place, meaning the study of the human beings who live there, basically us, because, you know, we're the most studied in the world. He did, though, identify something really interesting about the sandstone rocks that were in formation all around Darugnura. And this is coming from a bloke who wrote a history article about him called Martin Thomas. And um, Matthews is basically quoted with saying that distinctive regional style of rock art was created from the sandstone. In the Sydney region alone, there were 875 rock shelters containing motifs painted in pigment that had been recorded now it's very interesting because if you look at sydney today versus when this was actually done uh, i guarantee you a lot of those have been destroyed for progress in building places there are almost as many engravings on exposed rock platforms this rich artistic legacy was created by the traditional darug speaking communities i must say that again the traditional darug speaking communities this is in the 1800s, this has been quoted. Who took advantage of the abundant expanses of flat sandstone where they created what were often complex series of pictorial engravings. So there was evidence recorded by these people that it was Darug country in the 1800s. And around that time, you know, we started up with La Permission being really started to build up in the 1830s. And, you know, the British would always move people almost up and to the left, I suppose you could say, um, because they moved us out to Sackville, they moved mob out to Yass, they, you know, Hollywood Mission, they kept going. But the the stutterable speaking mob, they come up from the south coast, they were moved on to Lapa Mission, but that's not their traditional homelands. So it's nice to see that we've actually got evidence to say this was Darug speaking country. All right, we're going to do a shout out to a deadly community organization that lives and breathes and works on Darugnura. So, INT Dance Company um, and community support team, shout out to you fellas. They are a local team that is run solely by passionate volunteers who just want to give back to community members. Now, it was started by deadly sister girl, Rebecca Spatiri, shout out to her and all the little deadly assistants and, and volunteers and everyone who works there. You guys are doing amazing, amazing work. And it was started three years ago before COVID hit. So they were still doing stuff during the COVID period. Now they started off with two local coal stores um, to stop food being sent to landfill and the coal stores themselves were real wanting keen to work with, with this mob. Um, they would go every day to pick it up, sort it out, and then hand it out to community members. Three years on, that small team of two has grown to 20-plus volunteers, eh? That's spread from Marsden Park to Bankstown all the way to Campbelltown. 
They saved food from five coals and two woolies. They sort all the food out and they put it up on their Facebook page to to showcase the community who need it or, you know, other members of the community who might know someone who doesn't have access to Facebook who can go, look, I need a hamper and I need to go and pick it up. Now, the Facebook page, if you want to know, is I and T, Dance and Community Support Team. Okay, so look them up on Facebook. Not only do they do all of this with hampers and, and gener you know, generously give back to community that way, they then have members, volunteers who work in the schools who then support the school programs, the breakfast clubs, and having fresh food available for family members to just come in and take it. They don't have to sign up for anything. If they, they need the feed, they come and get it and it's no questions asked. All right, they also support two DV transitioning homes for women and four childcare centres as well as a men's shelter. Now, remember, all these fellas are volunteers here. Now, they run solely on donations coming from community and local businesses, and they are truly non-for-profit. They are non-funded, and everything they give out is free. They just want to help people in need. They have, over the years, run Christmas drives, Easter drives, back-to-school drives. They've done a Mother's Day drive, a Father's Day drive. They've had garage giveaway days to open to locals so that community can come and fill a bag for free. This is the important stuff here, folks. There's always hit, a hit and they always get inundated with requests and that happens a lot. You know, at the moment we're going through a lot of stuff where things are too expensive. You know, people are barely making ends meet. And they do have to have a cutoff point, otherwise they don't have enough donations to feed everybody. You know, they just finished their 2023 Christmas drive and they're currently moving on to the 2024 Easter drive and they were able to give every child at James Meehan High School a goodie bag, which was such a big hit with the students that they've asked if they can do it again this year and the team are working on it right now. So if you want to donate to INT Community Group, get onto their Facebook page, send them a message. If you're friends with Rebecca Spiteri, get on her Facebook and give her a message too and say, sis, we want to donate money. The admin team and volunteers work extremely long hours to make sure this goes as far as it can so that no one misses out on basic necessities. They provide all the petrol to go out and collect the food. So these fellas aren't paying, you know, they're not getting any money for the fuel they're consuming. They're funding it themselves. They provide meat and sanitary items to those in emergency situations. They have three different low-cost food directories for Campbelltown, Liverpool and Fairfield, um, which has information on food relief. And although they're not registered for for um, being a you know a non-for-profit business, they do get support from the Yibirmara, Yibirmara Foundation, who are run by Indigenous members in Sydney and are a registered charity who have a support bus um, to help out as well. They don't work under Yibirmara, that they work with them. Okay, partnership is huge with this with this small group of, of volunteers. So they're looking for new volunteers. If you're interested, you know, hit them up. 
be amazing to have more community members there to help and more people means less work for the mob that are currently doing it but it also means that more mob can get support and assistance um you know an extra car means you can go hit up another coals it could mean that you know there's um more people to help with the admin to fundraise to get those easter drives the christmas drives the back to school drives all of that you know more 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 because at the moment we're seeing you know two dollar milks and all that don't exist no more you know you're looking at four dollars for milk you're looking at bread is is expensive you know these are basic things that we thought were cheap as now they're just getting ridiculous you can't buy meat sometimes people have to choose between petrol or food these fellas help give them a shout out so this is just a little bit of what they can do go to their facebook page and check them out and again marty budgety to sister girl rebecca and everyone who works there um, for free in int dance and community team much love marty Nubaj. All right, so we're going to start off with uh, Lizard Rock and uh, then we'll jump into sand mining at Durban. So Lizard Rock can be found in Belrose. For those of you who don't know, Northern Beaches. It's just a rock that looks like a lizard that some people have painted teeth on to make it even look more like a lizard. But there's actually more to it than that. There are over 400 registered sites at Lizard Rock or around Lizard Rock. But according to a report done on behalf of Metro Lauk, who own yes, I used air quotes, the land said there was nothing of significance at the site. Now, many people, residents, Darug and non-Darug mob all disagree. And there was a community meeting that was held about this, um, I believe in the last two years, where uh, Metro Lark got up and talked about everything about the land and the people and all this sort of thing. And when it came to question time, uh, people were actually openly um honest with their with their feedback and uh allegedly there was some negative uh pushback from metro lauk uh and i'm not surprised i'm not surprised and these were aboriginal people raising these concerns by the way so what the problem is it was lizard rock is that there's actual astro astronomical carvings there okay so stars, moon, sun, that sort of astronomical stuff. And even a carving of a tiger shark eating a boy. So why would that carving in particular of the tiger shark eating a boy be so important? Because around that location is where tiger sharks breed. So that's a warning. There's also an engraving of a kangaroo that you can see when you look at all of the, um, the newspaper articles or the, the reports done of a kangaroo, buru. Um, and then there's footprints, otherwise known as Mundos. Now, Metro Lark has put forward a 450 housing development proposal called Bachagarang, uh, without consultation or consent for the use of the name. It has hired a development company to push this out to community, but it's always been known as Lizard Rock. They want to sell it off because the site hasn't been maintained, which they're legally meant to do so under the New South Wales Aboriginal Land Rights Act of 1983 and the New South Wales Heritage Act of 1977. It's gone to pot 
because they haven't man they haven't looked after it and they mandated to do so so you can't claim bits and pieces of what you can and can't do under the act as a lands council you're held by all parts of the acts doesn't matter what you agree with and what you don't you are mandated to follow everything and that includes speaking to traditional owners having a traditional owner group protecting our sites protecting our language protecting our history and our culture and not pushing your own onto communities a sydney morning Herald article from october 22 2023 states Business papers published ahead of the Northern Beaches Council meeting on Tuesday said its overarching concerns about the development, aka Bachagarang, remain unchanged. So they're having a meeting about this, right? And they're not happy. The revised planning proposal fails with a capital F to address most of the concerns raised by Council in its submission to the Sydney North Planning Panel in November of 2022. And these Concerns include severe bushfire risks because land care management hasn't been done. Major impact upon biodiversity because land care management hasn't been done. Inconsistency with council's local strategic planning statement and local housing strategy because no one was consulted. And concerns regarding the required acquisition of council land in Forest Way for a slip lane to evacuate the area. Now, that last one concerns me because we all remember those bushfires, eh? The real bad ones, the 2020, 2019-2020 fires, yeah? And we know from mob down in Victoria that one place on the coastline where Uncle Bruce Pascoe was and they had one road in and one road out in bushfire season and they couldn't get out. You know, that's not common sense. That's That to me is insane. Why? Why would you cause a group of people to be 450 houses so let's say there's a, a car per per house let's go with that 450 cars going down one road trying to evacuate during a fire ain't gonna happen common sense people common sense leave the site alone so metro want to sell off Darugnura after letting it rot for decades and allow houses to be built despite a clear failure to address the council council's concerns let alone what the people who live there and the traditional owners think so how does this actually happen? Well, the Daily Telegraph, yes, I'm quoting the Daily Telegraph, from January to 2024 states that um, the CEO of Metro Lauk, Nathan Moran, is quoted as saying that the purpose of this is, of, of any sort of um, land council grab for land, is making claims for Crown land is to give us something back for all of the other land we've lost in the state of New South Wales since colonisation. No. And when you look at the trillions of dollars in wealth that has been taken from us, I find it disgusting that councils would engage in fear-mongering. Um, no. They're right about the bushfire risks. They're right about the, the lack of land care management and the biodiversity. You know, throw in the fact that sacred sites and, and carvings and um, history and knowledge is all kept on that on that country that you want to build houses on top of that's not fear-mongering rarely do I side with gobs uh, I really do but no and giving land in Sydney to take back for all the other land that they've lost in New South Wales how about you go back to your own country and you take that land back seriously leave Lizard Rock alone
Not once have Dud or Giorda been consulted or engaged in any process to do with this claim. If anything, we've been ignored. Protecting Darugnura is paramount. Fighting for Darugnura is paramount. It's in our DNA. It's our heart and soul. All right, let's change tactic and go a bit out to the west of Sydney. So sand mining on Durabang is currently occurring. Well, how the hell did this happen? Before I get into it, I want to do a shout out to Annie Rosfog, who has been very vocal in trying to stop the sand mining in Durban. She has been trying for a very long time. Now, full disclosure, she is a cousin, like cousin cousin, um, but aunt works um, tirelessly for community and trying to make sure that, that Daruk voices are heard in council, in um, government spaces, uh, with corporations and other businesses. So a big shout out to Annie Rose for all the work you've done out. We really do appreciate you being so staunch. So getting back to how Durabang and the sand mining happened, well, allegedly Durabang, aka Daruglauk, aka no idea who they are in terms of which mob they really come from, um, had a hand in it at some point, including the sale of land to the mining company, a mining company. So to quote the Hawkesbury Post on the 21st of September of 2021, the new mining site bordered by the Hawkesbury River and Freeman's Reach Road, just up from Corrick's Lane roundabout, will see 70,000 tonnes of sand dug up each year for a decade. Okay, 70 thousand tons of sand which will lead to soil erosion which is kind of crap and the destruction of Nura oh wait sorry the further destruction of Nura in that 10 years quick math for those of you playing at home 700,000 tons of sand in the 10 years collective now, each curve of Durabang is named after a body part and holds special significance with Darug mob. You look up the Durabang project, which was led by Grace Carskins, where the comprehensive list of Reverend Maccabi can be found, but also a whole pile of historical information. And it's got this really deadly looking map and you can click on things and, and um, find out the history of certain places, white and, and mob. But... There's also the 11 stories of, of Durabang, which if you want to know more about, look it up. That's just an aside here because I think, you know, we need to know this, the importance of Durabang to us as a community before we go further into it. So I've talked about the 700,000 tonnes of sand that will be taken out of Durabang for sand mining in the next decade. Well, the Hawkesbury City Council created a pamphlet on Durabang and particularly Yaramundi Reserve. And they describe how in the early 1900s, so over 100 years ago, the demand for sand to build public housing or public buildings, I should say, was high and housing too. But this demand continued till 1989. They also state the extraction of the sand dramatically altered the landform of the reserve that we now know as Yaramundi Reserve. 
the council participated in some landscaping and restoration works to open it up again to the public in 2007. But they identified that the vegetation at the reserve that once consisted of river oak forests and endangered river flat forests uh, had to be replanted on the site, meaning that they did not know they didn't um, naturally occur there without help. So you think of it from a perspective of you know how we've got the the white rhino and um, people are trying to bring you know keep that so it doesn't die out it's not extinct and so they're looking at IVF and they're looking at other things in order to to support the the continuation of the white rhino well in terms of trees the council's been having to plant the trees because the land hasn't recovered from the mining parts of the of the reserve are now considered a wildlife refuge but still the damage has been done and sand running still continues because construction still needs more sand and no one has sought to look for an alternative source or here's a novel thought let's make our bricks out of something else all right so we're going to go to um another welcome by an undoubted person so we'll flip back to Invasion Day last week and there was the Wagalora ceremony at Barangaroo named as Gadigal country, not Gadigal, Darug Nura. So Wagal means one in our language and Ora or Giyora should be people. So one mob basically is what they translated it to. Now there's plenty of reference to Eora, the people nation, but there is no reference to Darugnura. When we erase the nation, we erase the truth. Now, this day had mob who were not Darug singing and dancing um, at, the, at the ceremony, and this was decided by Metro Lauk. There was talk about our four warriors that dawned the sails of uh, the Opera House and even a minute's silence. For mob who were denied connection to Darugnura daily, denied their right to share their family stories by the same people who organised it. So we've got our mob being showcased and talked about, but as members of the Eora nation, and we have to sit there and listen to it if we choose to. Then we get the welcome by the, the chair of Metro Lark, not to be not to be thought of as the CEO, totally separate. Allegedly, they're now partners, but that's allegedly. But the chair of Metro Lark got up and claimed in her speech that uh, her children and grandchildren are now Bidjigal and thus cementing her claim to cultural authority under the Act that she could say whatever she liked. She then pays homage to the mighty Eora Nation, the People Nation, not the Darug nation. When we erase the nation, we erase the truth. In a direct quote from her welcome, she says, the denial of us, who we are, what we are, this country's First Nation people. Just because the gubs give you permission doesn't mean you do it. You're a visitor on Darug Nora. You need to pay respects. Now, you can find this on the Wagal Order Ceremony of 2024 
on SBS. Now, the way they spell it is W-U-G-U-L-O-R-A. We say Woggle, not Woggle. You will have to sign up to be uh, part of SBS online, but you can watch all these amazing mob documentaries and TV shows and everything else. So it's a, sort of a bonus as well. But just watch everyone pat themselves on their backs about invading our Nura for a second time. Why would we want to celebrate as the first to be invaded Invasion Day? Why would we want any of our community members, our family members, our ancestors identified as tokenistic pieces of information because that's all it is because they got no ties to it? Why would we want to see that? Now, any Bidjigal Dudug mob want to claim this one connecting um, to your community, can you remind her that Dudug, Dalang and Dudug Nura are 100% Dudug? They are Dudug. There's no, there's no disclaiming that, discrediting any of that. It's documented. And it always has been and always will be. Never heard her make a comment, though, interestingly, about her family members being Bidjigal. Uh, um, ever. So I guess the, the demanding respect and recognition as, as a community is pushing out a new narrative from, from one Yvonne Weldon. We'll see how we go and watch this space. All right, I'd like to wrap up now and say Māori Dijurigura, many thanks for joining me about the truth and history of Darugnura. Next time, we'll dig deeper into the history and Dalang of Darugnura and investigate yet another non-Darug welcome to country on Darugnura. Nabaunya. See you soon. Yanu. Bye. Anyone Can Do a Welcome was written and presented by Anissa Jones. This podcast is an opinion on the history and current interactions on Darug Nora. Dijurigura, Naragu.